While we were marching through Georgia, everybody swing your honey, swing your high and low. The Alaman left for the old left hand, around the ring you go. A grand old right to left walk on your heel and toe. Promenade that pretty gal to Georgia. James Longstreet was born in 1821 in South South Carolina, although he would always consider himself a native Georgian. His parents owned a cotton plantation near where Gainesville would later be founded, but at nine years old, he was sent to live with his uncle near Augusta. This way, he could attend the Richmond Academy. Longstreet's father always planned for his son to attend West Point and serve in the Army. And while he was attending Richmond, his father died in 1833 and his mother moved out of the area. So Longstreet became more part of his uncle's family. He did attend West Point, but he found himself distracted. This is from his autobiography written in 1908. As cadet, I had more interest in the school of the soldier, horsemanship, sword exercise, and the outside game of football than in the academic courses. He graduated 60th out of a class of 62 in 1842, along with G.T. Beauregard and Braxton Bragg, and one year ahead of Ulysses Grant. Longstreet and Grant found themselves new lieutenants in Missouri, and the two rode together to visit Miss Julia Dent, who would later marry U.S. Grant. He served under Zachary Taylor in Louisiana and later in St. Augustine, Florida. All right, it's it's very hot today, the day I'm writing this, and I can't even imagine a career marching in a wool uniform through Missouri, then Louisiana, then St. Augustine. He fought in the Mexican War and was promoted to first lieutenant and then was later promoted to captain and then major. He fought in some of the most decisive battles of the war. He returned home and married Louise Garland, starting a family that would eventually include 10 children. They both attended Ulysses Grant's wedding in St. Louis, and then they moved around. Pennsylvania, Texas, Kansas, the Army put him in a few different places. His autobiography isn't very deep concerning his pre-war years, and apparently a fire destroyed most of his personal papers. He did eventually write his autobiography to defend his conduct in the Civil War, which began as Longstreet was a paymaster in Albuquerque, New Mexico. On the news of Fort Sumter, a group of officers left the garrison and traveled back to their home states. There's an interesting note in his book where a sergeant of his regiment offers to travel home alongside him, but Longstreet advises against it. As officers, they had the right to resign their commissions and make their own choices, but enlisted men had made a commitment for a number of years, and therefore were bound to stay with the Union Army. He actually makes a note that he's relieved when the U.S. government accepts the resignation of his commission. He details a fairly long trip from New Mexico to Richmond, but he did manage to report for duty at the Confederate War Department in 1861. He was appointed a brigadier general and sent to Manassas, where he did fight along that stream called Bull Run. He served throughout the South with General Lee and earned his trust as a reliable soldier. When you read books about Longstreet's life, he's portrayed at this point as Lee's old warhorse, somebody that Lee really trusted for good sound counsel. 
There are some criticisms on his conduct, especially during Second Bull Run, and yes, there are times when he was slow to act on orders or simply held back when ordered to charge blindly. I think you could level those charges on just about anybody in the Civil War, as orders often came to leaders long after being written and without Lee knowing the specific situation each leader was in. Sometimes, Longstreet simply couldn't be in a specific place at a specific time because of Union troops that Lee didn't know about. Hindsight is 2020, of course. The real issue came later, when people tried to deflect blame for a major Confederate loss away from General Lee and onto Longstreet. According to his autobiography, Longstreet was aware that when his army marched into Pennsylvania to invade the enemy's homeland that they were outnumbered and outgunned. He felt that more soldiers armed with improved firearms could be overcome, however, with the morale afforded by brave hearts and with strategic skill. Surveying the Union forces at Gettysburg, Longstreet recommended that their forces move laterally, placing themselves between Grant and Washington, D.C., cutting off lines of communication. Lee had other ideas and held firm. The next day, Longstreet would be given orders to attack the enemy's flank where Lee believed it to be located. Longstreet asked for a short delay for the rest of his men to arrive and left about 40 minutes after he had been first expected to leave, but with all his men. Minor points like this would become major accusations long after the war. They were supposed to move without being seen by the Union troops, but the route Lee sent him on made him visible to the enemy. They backed up and did achieve their goal without being seen by the enemy, but hours past the time they were meant to be there. There was another problem. The Union troops were not where Lee had supposed them to be. Everyone adjusted, and General Hood, the leader of one of Longstreet's two divisions, requested permission to spread out a little further to enable an attack on the enemy's flank. This was asked and refused three times. Longstreet's supporters point out that spreading out the troops any further would have made the line too easily broken if the enemy charged. His detractors claim that Longstreet was put out at having his plans rejected by Lee and that he refused simply out of bad temper. Either way, at the end of the day's fighting, the left side of the Union forces had been severely battered but still held. That night, George Pickett and his men arrived. This would be the 3rd Division Longstreet commanded at the battle. They had missed the first day of fighting, but they had been ordered by Lee to join Longstreet's forces. They were meant to attack simultaneously with an assault on the Union's opposite flank, but when the attack didn't materialize, Lee rode to Longstreet's position to assess the situation. He found Longstreet wasn't even in position to attack. He was still trying to determine where his men would have been most effective against the enemy. Lee pointed to a spot on the Union line and ordered 15,000 men to assault the line there. Longstreet disagreed, and Longstreet won out. Rather than an attack that Longstreet didn't believe would work, he would instead attack the Army's center with Pickett's men. 
All right, let's pause for a moment here. And let me just say I've heard several people describe Gettysburg as the most analyzed and studied battle of any war. If you want to, you could track pretty much any movement by pretty much any individual throughout the course of the fighting. I may be overgeneralizing the conditions of the battle, and I may even be misinterpreting a little bit of this. The fine details of the battle are important, but what's important for this particular episode is the fact that Longstreet debated his orders and was sometimes forced to delay. These actions would be seen by later historians and even some veterans as refusal to obey orders or outright incompetence. The strongest evidence for Longstreet's detractors lies ahead. Longstreet didn't support the frontal attack that Lee proposed, but orders were orders, and his men moved into position. He stood and watched as the artillery opened up and the Union began to fire back. After about two hours, the time came for Longstreet and his men to attack, but it's likely that he still didn't believe it would be effective. Pickett asked for permission to advance, and Longstreet only nodded in reply. It was a disaster, and after the forward charge was eliminated, Longstreet pulled his artillery into position to fight a potential Union counterattack. Luckily, that counterattack didn't come, and Lee's plans to invade the North were ended. Longstreet defends his action vigorously in his autobiography. Lee apparently took the credit or the blame for the South's defeat at Gettysburg, and Longstreet cites a few instances where Lee actually says the battle may have been won if he'd implemented some of Longstreet's plans. He cites similar battles in the Franco-Prussian War and even invokes Napoleon to his defense. Either way, Longstreet would continue to show himself a competent general. He fought in the Battle of Chickamauga, Later, he transferred to the West and fought at Chattanooga and Knoxville, even though he had a very low opinion of his commanding officer, Braxton Bragg. Bragg would not place the trust in him that Lee had, and Longstreet was sometimes criticized for not moving quickly enough. He was wounded in the shoulder during the Battle of the Wilderness from a shot fired mistakenly by his own men, and he was sent to recuperate in Augusta. He rejoined the army just in time to fight at Appomattox. He would ride to the courthouse with Lee and watch the surrender. And later, he was offered a cigar from his old friend, Ulysses Grant. Longstreet was indicted with a few comrades, including Lee, for treason after the war, but Grant intervened and explained that they were under parole from the North, having surrendered and were protected under the terms of surrender. Later, he would ask for a federal pardon from Andrew Johnson, but it would be refused. The story is that Johnson claimed he could pardon anyone except Jefferson Davis, General Lee, or him. He had just given the Union too much trouble. He was an advocate for Reconstruction and a member of the Republican Party, which at the time was Abraham Lincoln's and General Grant's party, something that would have caused animosity among his former peers. 
Two years after Lee's death, former General Jubal Early accused Longstreet of bungling the Battle of Gettysburg, and that, along with his support for abolishing slavery and offering citizenship to African Americans, Longstreet was painted as a traitor to the Southern cause. He was a vocal supporter of President Grant and traveled to Washington for his inauguration. At one point, Longstreet, as a general in the militia, mobilized African-American troops to defend the Louisiana State House from a group of over 8,000 people known as the White League, who were protesting a close election in which a Republican had been elected governor. Federal troops were needed to end the violence, and Longstreet was criticized heavily for his role in taking the Republican government's side against those members of the White League. Despite public opinion, he had a full career after his military service. In 1875, he moved to Gainesville, Georgia, and bought the Piedmont Hotel and a farm. He was involved in politics and even served as ambassador to Turkey. His name was put up as a possible secretary of the Navy, and he served as a U.S. Marshal in Atlanta. The election of Grover Cleveland ended his ties to Washington, and he retired to his farm. Retired? I don't know. He wrote his autobiography in which he defended his military career, served as a commissioner to the railroads under two more U.S. presidents, and he remarried. He died in Gainesville at 82. He's buried in the Alta Vista Cemetery. Longstreet was vilified for a while after his death, but it was hard to make the accusation stick, and his reputation improved in the 70s with the publication of a book called The Killer Angels, a retelling of the Battle of Gettysburg. If you've seen the movie Gettysburg, it was based on that book. In 1998, a statue of Longstreet was put up at Gettysburg, a pretty clear indication that his reputation was on the mend. And as usual, I want to remind you that Moving Through Georgia is a history podcast mostly focusing on Northeast Georgia. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please drop me a line at movingthroughgeorgia at gmail.com. If you have any further interest or interest in researching just about anything, I get a lot of information from the Internet Archive, archive.org. A lot of libraries have digitized their collection, and when I come across a notation about a book, I can usually find it in the Internet Archive, check it out, and read it right here on my computer. To produce this episode, I ended up checking out six books from the Internet Archive. It didn't cost me a dime, and I was able to read them all right here from my chair. And there's more to it than that. There's a vast collection of music, still images, computer software, anything you can possibly imagine. You can even go to the Internet Arcade and play pretty much any arcade game you can think of in its original form. I also recently used the library function to read some fairly obscure Batman comic books that I had not been able to find since college. They were right there. All right, that's my shameless plug for archive.org. 
Everybody's swinger, honey, swinger, high and low. The yellow man left for the old left hand, around the ring you go. A grand old right left walk on your heel and toe. From an a deputy gal to Georgia. That's all.